morning. My name is Karen. Today's reading comes from Exodus chapter 1, verses 6 through 22. Please follow along in your own Bibles or simply listen as the scriptures are read. Again, that's Exodus chapter 1, starting with verse 6. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. Parents and guardians of children in kindergarten through grade two, you are invited to escort your kids to the back of the room to join Kids Commons upstairs. If you are able, we invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. In time, Joseph and all of his brothers died, ending that entire generation. But their descendants, the Israelites, had many children and grandchildren. In fact, they multiplied so greatly that they became extremely powerful and filled the land. Eventually, a new king came to power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. He said to his people, Look, the people of Israel now outnumber us and are stronger than we are. We must make a plan to keep them from growing even more. If we don't, and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us. Then they will escape from the country. So the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves. They appointed brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down with crushing labor. They forced them to build the cities of Pithom and Ramses and as supply centers for the king. But the more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more the Israelites multiplied and spread and the more alarmed the Egyptians became. So the Egyptians worked the people of Israel without mercy. They made their lives bitter, forcing them to mix mortar and make bricks and do all the work in the fields. They were ruthless in all of their demands. Then Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, gave this order to the Hebrew midwives, Shipra and Puah. When you help the Hebrew women as they give birth, watch as they deliver. If the baby is a boy kill him. If it is a girl, let her live. But because the midwives feared God, they refused to obey the king's orders. They allowed the boys to live too. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives. Why have you done this, he demanded. Why have you allowed the boys to live? The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, the midwives replied. They are more vigorous and have their babies so quickly that we cannot get there in time. So God was good to the midwives, and the Israelites continued to multiply, growing more and more powerful. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all of his people, throw every newborn Hebrew boy into the Nile River, but you may let the girls live. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name's Chrissy, and I'm one of the pastors here at Haverhill Commons Church. It's good to be together this morning and to be able to worship God together with all of you. As we do every week, I'd like to invite you just to take a moment to pause, to come present to where you are, present to God, and then we'll pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the gift of being together. We thank you for the ways that you have invited us here, invited us into your community, invited us to be with you. We ask this morning that you would help us to hear the things that you would have for us, to listen, 
to the ways that you are speaking to us, that you would help us to keep what is good and leave what is not, that we would be aware of you with us this morning. We thank you for your goodness and for your grace to us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. In the fall of 2017, a movement swept through social media. It started with a tweet from the actress Alyssa Milano with the hashtag, MeToo. It was intended to raise awareness about the all-too-prevalent issues of sexual harassment and abuse against women in workplaces. While Milano's use of the phrase launched it as a social media movement, the phrase itself originated a decade earlier with the community activist Tarana Burke, a way to express solidarity with other women who had experienced sexual violence. As the movement grew, it also came to encompass the mistreatment of women in other arenas of life, not just in the workplace. Now, the response to Milano's tweet was overwhelming in so many ways. Thousands of women quickly followed suit, telling stories, demanding change, better accountability, and more equitable systems and structures to stop the aggression against women. According to the Pew Research Center, within the first year, hashtag MeToo was used more than 19 million times. There was a painful cry aching to be heard. Shortly on the heels of hashtag MeToo, there was another hashtag, ChurchToo, because this painful cry was heard in some churches also. And sometimes in the church, it's just as hard, if not harder, to talk about this mistreatment of women. As Me Too and Church Too filled my social media feed that fall, I felt something stirring up in me, a growing conviction to speak up and support the women who had shared their stories. More than once, I pulled up a Facebook post and started typing. I wrote a few sentences and then typed the hashtag, me too, church too, and then I deleted them. Typed them again and deleted them again. Because as strong as the outcry of those movements was, the opposition was equally so. Among some Christian circles, me too and church too were strongly denounced painted as an attack against family values in a way of throwing mud at the church, another stone thrown by the world in the culture wars, another attack on the church. Me Too and Church Too were seen by some as bad words, something good Christians should oppose, not join. Definitely not something we talk about in church. And I was on staff with a church at the time. I had a reputation to maintain. And I knew those hashtags might not be good for that reputation. So despite my deep yearning for the church to break its silence and to learn how to talk about the mistreatment of women instead of posting, I silently cheered on the other women in my life who had the courage to speak up. Now I want to pause and acknowledge that there are really good reasons for choosing not to share a story, choosing not to post Me Too. This isn't me saying that you or anyone else should have joined the Me Too movement. Social media may not be the place to process trauma. And part of owning our story is choosing when 
and where and how and whether to share it. But if I'm being honest, I know the real reason that I deleted those posts. I was comfortable telling my story, but I was afraid of being affiliated with the Me Too movement. Afraid a Me Too post didn't fit with the image of myself I had given my church community. I was afraid of what I might lose if I hit that post button. What about you? Have you ever felt that stirring before? That deep in your gut knowing you should do something feeling? But then you just sat down, froze up, walked away. Why do we do that? Why do we know, deep gut level know, that something is wrong and still we turn away? Watch as others get mistreated, get pushed aside or taken advantage of and choose to look the other way. This fall, we're preaching through a series called Jubilee, recalibrating for the common good, and we're looking at the ways that God's people have courageously and creatively leveraged their privilege to transform economic, social, religious, and political systems to bring about the common good. And we're exploring the ways that we can do the same. If you missed last week, Matt helped us consider privilege from a biblical perspective, what we do and don't mean when we use that buzzword and some of the ways we're invited to participate in what God is doing through leveraging our own privilege. This morning, as we come to the story of Exodus 1, I hope we can slow down long enough to wrestle with this question of why we ignore evil. Dominique Dubois-Gilliard, in his book Subversive Witness, puts it this way. What keeps good people silent and complicit when they know their neighbor is being dehumanized, oppressed, exploited, and or massacred? It's a tough question, and one we don't ask often enough in the church. As we consider this question this morning, let's first recognize how fear keeps us from acting on behalf of others. And then let's explore how faith in God can give us the courage to act when we see others being mistreated. So let's look at how fear keeps us from acting and how faith in God can give us the courage to act. If Genesis is part one of the story, then Exodus is part two. So in a nutshell, there was creation, the fall, lots of stories about Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and finally Joseph being sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt but ultimately being raised by God to a position of prominence and privilege that allowed him to bring his entire family to Egypt and save them from famine. And this is where we pick up the story this morning. Time has passed, and God's people are fulfilling the command he gave them as part of creation to multiply and fill the earth. And that's the problem. They're filling the earth of Egypt. So while the previous ruler or rulers who had a relationship with Joseph may have viewed that as an asset, a whole new regime has come to power, probably a new dynasty of pharaohs in Egypt. And this regime, this pharaoh, has no ties or loyalty to Joseph. And this new pharaoh sees the rapid expansion of the Israelites as a threat to his power. It's a threat he intends to capitalize on. 
So Pharaoh begins Plan A, a propaganda campaign which starts by creating an us and them division between the Israelites and the Egyptians and ends with leveraging that division to enslave the whole people group. Pharaoh tells the Egyptians, look, this people of Israel now outnumber us and are stronger than we are. There's the us and them of step one. Egyptians, you're part of the in-group. Don't be like those people over there, those Hebrews. And then Pharaoh says, we must make a plan to keep them from growing even more. If we don't, and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us. Then they will escape from the country. Step two, fear. Make us, the Egyptians, afraid of them, the Hebrews. Because when we're afraid of them, we're so much more willing to dehumanize them, to objectify them, and forget that they're also people created in the image of God to let fear drive us to otherwise unthinkable actions. Like making the whole nation of Israel into slaves. And if that were all, it would be more than enough that it should have prompted an outcry. Surely at least a few Egyptians disagreed with Pharaoh's evaluation that the Israelites were dangerous and not to be trusted. But nowhere in the text do we see that anyone raised an alarm stood up for the Israelites, were challenged Pharaoh. And as is typically the case, once evil gets started, it rarely stops on its own. Enslaving the Israelites doesn't work out quite the way that Pharaoh planned it. The Israelites keep growing despite their slavery, and as the numbers grow, so too does the Egyptians' fear of them. In Operation Stop Israelite Expansion, it's Israelites 1, Pharaoh Zero. So Pharaoh moves to plan B. Force some Hebrew midwives to help him keep Israel under control. He orders the midwives, Shifra and Pua, to kill any baby boys they help deliver, but the girls they can let live. Now for the first time in this story, someone stands up to Pharaoh. But it's not his nobles or officials or others with power like his. It's some women from an oppressed minority group, two Hebrew midwives. And flat out, these midwives just ignore Pharaoh's direct order. They let the boys live. Now, we have to assume that they weren't ignorant. They knew what this could cost them. Generally, you don't defy Pharaoh and get away with it. He's a ruthless dictator. So why would these midwives put their lives on the line by defying Pharaoh? We find the answer in five really important words that I want to make sure we hear this morning. Because the midwives feared God. Because the midwives feared God. Now it's easy to shoot right by this verse to get to the next event in the story. But I think everything about the way these women acted hinges on two words, feared God. When we see this phrase, fear of the Lord, in the Old Testament, it's not just, oh, I'm terrified, run and hide. Fear of the Lord also carries a deep sense of awe and reverence, of trusting in the Lord, as well as a sense of the need to submit to God 
because of how great and good God is. If you're a C.S. Lewis lover like me, there is a moment from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe that illustrates this so well. It's when the Pevensey children first hear about the great lion, Aslan, and Mrs. Beaver tells them, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. So Lucy, the youngest, asks, then he isn't safe? To which Mr. Beaver replies, who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I think fear of the Lord is a lot like that. Knees knocking, but also good. It's a deep-seated faith and reverence for God, the kind of faith that drives people to action. And this is exactly the kind of deep-seated faith that we see from the midwives, Shifra and Pua. They refuse to obey the most powerful ruler in the land because they have a deeper reverence for God than they do for Pharaoh. Now, I'd hazard a guess this surprised Pharaoh. He probably wasn't used to being ignored. So he calls the midwives back and demands, why have you allowed the boys to live? And the midwives make up this story about the Hebrew women being more vigorous than the Egyptian ones and how they basically don't need any help from the midwives. Which is kind of like saying to Pharaoh, our people aren't as weak as yours, so we just couldn't do what you asked. Which is a very gutsy thing to say to a ruthless dictator you justified. And I just have to pause and note the irony here. Pharaoh is so confident that he has absolute control over women that he's ordering the midwives to kill the boys but let the girls live. And yet these two courageous women are the ones that are foiling his plans. So Pharaoh's plan B doesn't work out quite the way he planned it either. Despite his best efforts, the Israelites continue to fulfill the command that God gave them at creation, and they continue to multiply, growing more and more powerful. So if we're checking in on Operation Stop Israelite Expansion, it's now Israelites and midwives too, Pharaoh still zero. Except the Israelites are his slaves, so it's not exactly like they're on top in this power structure. So at this point, does Pharaoh just throw up his hands and say, okay, that didn't work, I give? Not likely. Those in power are rarely that quick to give it up. Because Pharaoh does not fear God. In Egypt, he was seen as a god, an object of worship. And he refuses the idea that he would have to reverence anyone else. Instead, he moves to plan C. This time he orders his own people to throw every newborn Hebrew boy into the Nile River. But you may let the girls live. Let the girls live? When is this dude going to learn it's the girls and the women that are standing up to him? But this is how the abuse of power often goes, isn't it? One thing leads to the next, which leads to the next, which leads to the next until one day we wake up and realize that the unthinkable is happening. Or maybe we don't wake up because we've allowed ourselves to be lulled to sleep each step of the way. Now, it's interesting to me that in this whole passage, not once do we hear that any Egyptians objected to what Pharaoh did. 
when he drew the lines between Egyptians and Israelites and branded them Hebrews, no Egyptian spoke out. When he enslaved the Israelites to build his cities, no Egyptian spoke out. And when he ultimately ordered the genocide of every Israelite baby boy, no Egyptian spoke out. Egypt was a big place. I imagine, again, that at least a few Egyptians disagreed with what Pharaoh was doing. But we don't have any record that they protested or stood up for their Israelite neighbors or cried out when Pharaoh ordered infanticide. Why not? And while I'd love to point the finger at Egypt, as the saying goes, I think that leaves four fingers pointing back at me. It's so easy to look at others in history and to imagine we'd be on the right side. I know I have. As a teenager, I stood at a genocide memorial in Rwanda, angry that the world would have let something so atrocious as the slaughter of millions of people happen. And I was convinced that I would have been like Paul Rusa Sabagina, the hotel owner from Hotel Rwanda who saved million, hundreds of lives by sheltering them from attackers. I'd be like that. And later in college, I visited the Holocaust Memorial in Berlin with a German friend, and likewise felt certain I would have been like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor who joined the resistance against Hitler. Surely, I wouldn't have been one of those German Christians who watched silently, complicit while Hitler and his regime committed atrocities. Except when it came right down to it, when women across the country and around the world were crying out to be heard and recognized and treated with dignity and respect, I sat down and shut up because I was afraid. And then I did what we so often do in those moments. I rationalized it. Social media wasn't the right venue for that conversation. This wasn't a good time for me to post something like that. Maybe I'd do it later. And I let the moment pass. We do that, don't we? Rationalize to assuage our guilt, to help us move on so we can live with the decision to ignore what we know is right. Because we're afraid of what it might cost us to do something. But every time we ignore what is right, we slowly become numb to the world around us. Numb to the cries of our neighbors and numb to the invitations God is offering us to join in the things that God is doing. And when we do this, we become enslaved to the very things that we're trying so hard to hold on to. Enslaved to our reputation. Enslaved to our drive for power or success. Enslaved to our own comfort or need to belong. Because whatever the thing, when we let it dictate our actions or lack thereof, we become its slave. But guilt over our failure to act isn't enough to motivate us to sustained action. This is why fear of the Lord is so important. We don't conquer fear by pretending we're not afraid. Ignoring fear doesn't usually make it go away. It just gives fear more power over us because we're minimizing it, pretending it doesn't exist, when really, we know it does. Let's face it, I've never talked myself out of being afraid. I tried to recently, actually. 
About a month ago, our family took a road trip to Georgia to visit some friends. And on the way home, we drove through the Smoky Mountains of North Carolina to do some hiking. And Hunter picked out this really awesome spot called Klingman's Dome, where you can hike up a trail, climb an observation tower, and on a clear day, you can see seven states at once. It's incredible, awe-inspiring, and absolutely gorgeous. But I forgot until I was climbing up the observation tower how petrifyingly afraid of heights I am. So there I was, about a third of the way up this tower, feeling my body starting to shake. And the first version of my pep talk to myself went something like this. Chrissy, you're not that afraid of heights. There is a concrete wall between you and falling. No way are you going to chicken out of this right now. Weirdly enough, at the end of that pep talk, my body was still shaking. And it was getting increasingly difficult to put one foot in front of the next and keep climbing. The second version of my mental pep talk went more like this. Yep, I'm terrified. My body is physically trying to stop me because of how afraid I am right now. But I really want to see that view. I just drove six hours with two kids in the car specifically to see this view. And it's going to be awesome. So yeah, I'm scared. But I'm going to do this anyway. Because the view will be worth it. One foot in front of the other. I'm going to see this view. Now, wouldn't you know it, version two of that pep talk was a lot more effective than version one, than trying to convince myself I wasn't afraid. Because what conquers fear is not convincing ourselves we're not afraid. It's being convinced that there is something beyond our fear, more important to us than our fear. The fear is still there. We're still afraid. But we place our primary focus on something else. On my hike, it was the view. For Shifra and Pua, it was their fear of the Lord, their deep-seated faith in God. I think there's a reason I didn't post Me Too in 2017, but this morning I'm able to admit that. And for me, that reason boils down to all the ways I've become convinced that when God asks us to give up or release something, when God asks me to give up or release something, it's always to bring life and freedom for me and for those around me. Now, that doesn't always mean that everything goes the way we want it to. Bonhoeffer died for challenging Hitler. People have lost jobs and reputations for speaking truth to power. But I'm convinced that when we willingly release the things we're holding on to, the things that we're afraid of losing, be that wealth or status or reputation or livelihood or life or so many others, that's when we actually experience freedom. When we release our death grip on those things so that we can hold on to God. It's awfully hard to cling to both. God and money. God and reputation. And that's our invitation this morning. The invitation we see from the lives of Shifra and Pua. And the way they stood up to the power of Pharaoh and the Egyptian empire. We're invited to fear the Lord 
above all else. To reverence God more than we reverence the power structures of the world. And like the midwives, we're invited to use whatever positions we have, even if they're not big or grand or powerful, to do what is right. Even when there is intense pressure to do what is wrong. And we're invited to believe that in that we will experience the freedom and the goodness of God. I know Matt said it last week, but I think it's worth repeating. This is hard. It's uncomfortable. It's messy. It raises big, hard questions with big, uncomfortable emotions attached to them. But this is exactly what Jesus did for us. Hebrews tells us that because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Jesus wasn't excited about getting crucified any more than I might have been excited about posting hashtag me too. We see this when right before his arrest, Jesus asks God to take the suffering, to take the experience of the cross from him. And yet, because of his great love for us, because he saw that his death would bring our redemption, and because he was 100% committed to doing the will of God above all else, Jesus went to the cross anyways. He saw something beyond the cross. He saw us beyond the cross. Our redemption and our freedom were made possible because Jesus gave up his position as God for our good. Because Jesus was obedient to God above all else. And he invites us to join him in that. Church, this is a difficult and a weighty calling. But it's a beautiful and a good one. And I don't know exactly what that's going to look like for you because I don't know exactly where you may be in a position to do what is right on behalf of another. Or where you're seeing injustice that you might be able to stand up and speak out. Perhaps it's in the way you've seen a coworker mistreated and you have the opportunity to advocate on their behalf. Or a classmate being bullied and you can stand up for them. My encouragement for you this morning is to invite the Spirit to show you where you may have the opportunity to use a position you're in to speak up for another, or where you may be allowing fear to hold you back from doing so, and then to see what the Spirit might bring to mind for you. Because while fear may try to hold us back, I'm convinced that fear of the Lord, that faith in the goodness of our God, gives us the courage to be a people who love like Jesus, who stand up and speak out for the good of others. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you that you never ask us to go where you have not already gone. We thank you that for the joy set before you, you willingly endured the cross for our redemption, for our good, that we could be made whole with you. We ask this morning that you would meet us in the places that we are at, 
and that you would give us the courage to follow you in this. We thank you for your goodness and your grace and your presence with us. In your name we pray. Amen.